I am honored to offer the Dharma talk about once per season. And this is spring. My name is Kapoor. I'm wondering right now how many of you have Dharma buddies? I mean, someone you talk to about the Dharma, someone you check in with regularly. You're lucky, I think, if you have one, or even better, if like me, you have two. Two true Dharma friends. I can count more than two. I mean, over the years, uh, especially recently, I think, I have been blessed with relationships, big and small, for which the Dharma, Buddhist insights, values, ethics, and practices are the most significant concerns. The Sangha, this faith community here, is totally a gathering of Dharma friends. We show up for each other, we pay attention to one thing or another together, all kinds of different things going on, and none of them have to be called make a friend now night or date night at the Zen temple. But nonetheless, gradually, we grow and co-evolve a circle of care here. Co-evolve, evolution. That was the topic of my last Dharma talk and uh, spiritual progress, and I said that I would continue that this time, and, and it's still my intention to do so. But let me first tell you about my good friends my Dharma buddies, Russ and Wayne, I would say. But first, a message from our program sponsors. <laughs> my life would not be possible without a little help from my friends. Actually, not just a little, a lot. Luckily, I get a lot of help, for which I live in gratitude. Uh, I'm not talking about financial support. I'm not talking about the roof over my head, the food, the medicine. Although, without the help of others, I'd be in trouble one of those ways. Regarding my Dharma friends, though, I'm talking about the spirit and the spirited life. My Dharma friends are, are not really like sponsors or mentors. The idea of a sponsor, that reminds me of the 12-step uh, movement, right? The uh, 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 movement in which people are battling against their addictions. Huge importance is placed in 12-step in Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, in uh, a quite specific sort of supportive one-to-one -one relationship, featuring study, reflection, coaching, and mentoring, often daily contact, and these relationships, sometimes they last for decades. I get mentoring of another sort in another area of my life in the writing I'm doing in my professional practice, and this is not what I'm talking about with my Dharma buddies, Russ and Wayne. It's a bit similar, but there are important differences. They're not sponsors or mentors. And they're not teachers either, at least not formally. I mean, I learn things from them, but a teacher-student relationship is different again, especially in Buddhism. In, in this religion's history, the transmission of insight is channeled directly down a lineage of teacher to student. That's been seminal. In some cases, I might even say totemic, at least up until a few years back. I mean, in my experience, if you recognized another Buddhist somewhere, coincidentally perhaps, the first thing you'd be asked is, uh, who is your teacher? And then the person would be like, oh, okay, I know where you're coming from now. You know, I, I got you placed. And, and, and maybe this uh, identification is becoming less significant now, and I, I reckon it's actually better that, that it is less significant, in, in my view, because it's less hierarchical. Uh, uh, but that's a change that, that definitely underlines the need now for us to support each other in other ways. 
because without that top-down structure, we, we likely don't get as much refuge and shelter as in olden times. But Dharma buddies are more like equals. They bring different things to this meeting, different capacities, diverse experiences, unique viewpoints. <coughs> and as equals, these diverse things can be mutually acceptable and, and available. I met Russ right, right here at the temple one Sunday morning, I think, but it was at the old College Street location. And I don't really remember the time. I mean, it didn't seem particularly noteworthy that time. Uh, somehow or other, we went from chatting after the service to going over to the Tim Hortons. Uh, and I think that was either that Sunday or maybe the Sunday after that we actually went out for coffee. And we, we I don't really recall. It's like it didn't seem like a big deal at the time. But it, it's kind of interesting, though, that we, we've always talked predominantly about our practice. Uh, and Buddhism, but we have this huge professional field in common and, and refer to that only tangentially, if at all. Uh, he's a scientist in addiction studies and addictions have been my field too for many years now, mostly in restorative justice, along with writing and some speaking. But we, we switch from the Tim's on the corner to the Starbucks up the street, but always the focus remained on our practice and how it's going. We settled into a routine there, we made, met, about every, we met, not about, we met every second Saturday afternoon. And sometimes we go to events together, like maybe uh, lectures by visiting Buddhist teachers, and that was fun, that was, that was good. And it was like this for several years, and probably happily so still, but he left CAMH and U of T for a tenured professorship out in BC. So now we only get together about a year or so, once, and we talk on the phone uh, about every second week, maybe for an hour. Today, probably today, we'll talk on the phone. It's kind of funny because typically I, uh, I really avoid talking on the phone, and I, I don't want you to tell anybody that I do this <laughs> with, uh, because I, I, I don't want people to know that I'm not actually allergic to the telephone. I don't want that to get out. Uh, but with Russ and my sister, who's also on the coast, I, I make a, an exception. I talk on the phone, and today, and we'll chat about how our practice is going, often with quite specific accounts of our meditating and, and, and <coughs> what we're experiencing in meditation. We recommend books to each other, articles, we read them afterwards, we share our thoughts. He, he meditates more than anybody I know. He, he meditates for two hours early in the morning and then another two hours at the end of the day. And he, he goes, uh, he once gave me, uh, as a gift, was, I was touched, uh, it's called the Gym Boss. There's this little device, which is a timing device. Okay. And he used it for bringing a kind of mindfulness exercise to his everyday going around and hanging out sort of situations. And I was interested, you know, and so he, 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 he presented me with it. He got it off the internet, Jim Boss. And I said it for uh, four minutes and 33 seconds, for 4.33. And, and, and when it buzzes on my belt, when it buzzed on my belt, I, uh, I would pause my thinking and I would count my breaths, five down to zero. It was just an exercise until I left it in my shirt pocket and put the shirt in the laundry. <laughs> and uh, so it's not an exercise anymore. <laughs> uh, Russ goes on retreats uh, uh, quite a bit, sometimes short, sometimes longer, sometimes, you know, uh, a couple months, and uh, various monasteries. And he hooks up with famous teachers this, this way uh, or, or other ways. Last summer he attended a long uh, weekend, long weekend teaching by. Uh, Thanissaro Bhikkhu, 
Uh, he's a well-known Theravada translator and writer, and we read, Russ and I read several of Thanissero's books, and we really, really like this guy. So um, naturally, Russ's experience is going to be interesting to me, and it turned out to be quite encouraging uh, uh, regarding the method and purpose for meditation. Uh, so following up on, uh, on the discussion post-teaching, uh, I got one of Thanissero's books that outlined his particular meditation instructions, and I decided to change the way that I meditate. Yep, this was a big thing to do. Uh, ten years I've been sitting, meditating, basically the way that I learned here in the introductory meditation course, which was itself a change from the way I'd been meditating for the previous decade when I'd been uh, in a Tibetan Buddhist sangha in Winnipeg. So, I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, uh, not something I do more than once per decade, apparently. <laughs> and and uh, it's interesting that it was a Dharma buddy who is the principal inspiration and influence here, not someone who's in the formal role as my teacher. A big change for me. Now, just by coincidence, uh, Russ was the guy who introduced me to my other Dharma buddy, Wayne. In fact, what a coincidence, because that was the same day, same event, at which I met this mentor, I just happened to mention, Bruce. Bruce was the featured speaker at an event at CAMH, and uh, Center for Addictions and Mental Health. And uh, uh, Wayne was in charge of this event, this thing. And, and Russ got me in, it was sort of for, for the uh, inside staff. And, and they, uh, Russ introduced me to Wayne, and Wayne introduced me to Bruce. And this is you know, all about addiction studies. Uh, Wayne is an expert in addictions too, uh, more or less retired now. And so we started meeting. This is again, we started meeting at the Tim's on the corner. Uh, college in Spadina, which is sort of like my office when I was living at the Temple on College, <laughs> I guess. Uh, but uh, it wasn't that popular with people other than me, I guess. Uh, the, to the topic started out as addictions, but very soon we, we, Wayne and I started talking about, you know, concerns of the spirit and, and spiritual practices. But I guess, you know, as I say, the Tim's wasn't that attractive to him, and he had a corner office at the uh, Cambridge site that was right there, and so for the years subsequent, we, uh, we met in this quiet and comfortable office and then down at Queen Street West. And now we meet at a coffee shop. I met just the day before yesterday, uh, near, uh, on the west side, near where he lives. Uh, this is about 10 years now. We've been meeting every six weeks. You know? and, uh, and usually we talk for, for at least two hours. Sometimes, like, like Friday, it was like three hours. And, and, and I got home after that, and my wife, Judy, she asked me uh, at dinner, what's up with Wayne and, and, and Jane? What's, what, what are they doing? Anything interesting? I said, oh, oh, geez, I, I didn't get the chance to ask. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get a catch-up time in, you know, because uh, we were very uh, intensely discussing these matters of the Dharma, the thicket of views in which we were entangled. That's a, a thicket of views. That's a, a Buddhist term for how we are quite properly a little mistrustful of opinions and debates and these are intellectual conversations. But no, with Wayne and I, we, we don't get entangled in a thicket of views, I hope. We share a mountain meadow of views, the dancing of views, the yoga of views. We're nourishing mutual welfare and happiness. Wayne isn't a Buddhist. So he's my Dharma buddy, but he's not actually a Buddhist. He may be a pantheist. He believes that everything is imbued with spirit. He grew up a Catholic in Newfoundland, and uh, maybe now he's an Anglican, but then again, he uh, 
despite regularly attending a big high Anglican cathedral, I think it's because of the music principally that he goes, so I don't know. <laughs> but we, we don't know these days, right, about the religious or spiritual affiliations of people, who, even people who are close to us, so I, I, I wouldn't know what to put him down for. He laughed when at an event we co-hosted, um, I introduced myself as a lapsed atheist. <laughs> but he's more than just Buddhist curious, this guy. He, um, very well-informed, very open to Buddhism and related subjects, spiritual concerns, philosophical, psychological ideas, as I say, spiritual practices, and he's very wise. He's very kind, very, very kind. In fact, Russ, too. These are amazingly kind people, my true type of friends. One thing that always comes out from, one thing that, that a non-Buddhist like Wayne is always curious about in doctrine and stuff, it, it, it seems like this concept of non-self, you know, like, isn't that kind of crazy? I mean, it's me, right? I have a self, how could you say not-self? What, what, what was that at? And so I, I always struggle with this anatta. And I say to Wayne, Wayne, it's a heuristic. Now, with Wayne, we get to do that. I get to say words like, heuristic, because he and I read big books and share words with real enjoyment, and so I don't say, like, it's just a toolkit, which I could have uh, also said, and, and the doctrine of non-self, it's like a tool that helps us see things that we cling to as not essential to ourselves, not necessarily, and possibly not advantageously attached to, and, and this business of what is me and what is mine, we can, with this tool of anatta, not self, let go of it. Recognize what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. Let go of what's unwholesome and leads us astray. Astray being whatever takes us away from human flourishing, away from eudaimonia. Oh, that's another great word, eudaimonia. It means a well-fed soul. Isn't that nice? Wayne taught me the word because Aristotle used the word. And Wayne loves Aristotle. Sometimes he'll draw a comparison between Aristotle and the Buddha. We had a kind of a competition, a debate. You know, who's better, Aristotle? <laughs> is Aristotle's golden mean, you know, uh, beat Buddha's eightfold path. So that, that was that was totally fun. That, that was that was good. But anyway, on the idea of not self on Friday this past, I, I I was saying to Wayne, freedom to choose is basic to human dignity. It's the capacity for transformation. I like to think there is a self and that the self is very real. Real like a rainbow in the midst of a waterfall. Not unchanging, not separate, not eternal, but still real. I've shared this image uh, with him a few times before, but I went a little further with it on Friday. I said, uh, we can show up in the sunlight if we want to, to be our best selves, showing up brightly, right here for the world. I really like that way of describing it. I think Wayne is just a bodhisattva. But yeah, you know, we like words and we like these ideas. And, uh, and, and I wanted to talk to him about autopoiesis. I might be talking to Gremlin about autopoiesis for the likelihood of my being able to pronounce it correctly, which I don't necessarily because I, I'd never said the word, I'd only read the word. But I thought, you know, that's important to this Dharma talk I have to give. So with Wayne and, and Russ, when there's a Dharma talk coming, I kind of work on it with them, I get their help, right? There's a little bit of help from my friends. 
And so I'm still struggling. I don't know how to say autopoiesis. And I'm kind of embarrassed. I get distracted and I start digressing. I'm digressing a lot here too. <laughs> but with my Dharma buddy, it doesn't really matter so much because it's just like, you know, there's this grace that holds our spirits in care. But anyway, it's still, it's Friday afternoon and we're at this neighborhood coffee shop. It's the Field Trip, it's called, uh, near Bloor and Ossington. It's quite, quite, cool, quite a cool spot. And I'm trying to say autopoiesis, and I'm struggling a bit. Uh, and I'm thinking, okay, for this Dharma talk, I gotta get back to the idea of spiritual progress, I promise. Talked about evolution, spiritual progress, I, I was unfinished. Neurophenomenologists neuro love the word autopoiesis. Say that 10 times. <laughs> and, and Thomas Berry used it a lot. Now, Barry is, is, is very inspiring to me. He, he is one of the original inspirations to the deep ecology movement, right? Eco-spirituality. He was a professor of religious studies. He's a Catholic priest and theologian, but some people call him a geologian. He offered this evolutionary theory, which he called cosmogenesis, talking about a cosmos that is always striving into being an impelled universe. Talking uh, uh, about this, he, he, he reminded us of Spinoza, he used the word canatus, this primary evolutionary force, a universe, a, a cosmos that's intentional, an action, not a thing, but an ongoing process that is purposeful, and it's a story. It is the definitive story. Barry spelled it out, he called it the universe story, the real story of our universe, and it's developed in wonderful, amazing entirety from the great flaring forth, which we call the Big Bang, to right now in us. It's the ultimate myth for all time, for all beings, a creation story that everyone and everything can resonate with. A reductionist science of the past, and still we suffer with it, it is a viewpoint focused on the second law of thermodynamics. It states that everything disintegrates into heat, death, and noise. I mean, I was always uncomfortable for this because look, I mean, here we are, and uh, we are hopefully prevailing. Sometimes we turn noise into music even. So that's not disintegration, that's not, uh, that's not chaos, that's organization and that's uh, a beautiful creation. Uh, cosmogenesis, Canadas too, it's about integration instead of disintegration. It's about creativity. It's about a force ordered, and this is how Barry and the cosmologist Brian Swim uh, define it in a threefold principle. A trio, if it were music. A pas de deux, if it were dance. They wrote, the cosmogenetic principle states that the evolution of the universe will be characterized by differentiation, autopoiesis, and communion throughout space and time and at every level of reality. These three things, everything is about we are all about and uh, all things are animated in these three ways. What a unifying theory this is. Differentiation, autopiasis, and communion. A triune basis for everything, a trinity. Different words for differentiation are diversity, complexity, variation, disparity, multiform nature, heterogeneity, articulation. Just gonna make things different. Different words for autopoiesis are subjectivity. 
self-manifestation, sentient self-organization, dynamic centers of experience, presence, identity, inner principle of being, voice, interiority, us, me, you, but us. Communion, the third thing in this triune, is interrelatedness, interdependence, kinship, mutuality, internal relatedness, reciprocity, complementarity, interconnectivity, interbeing, Tignaton words it. Differentiation, autopoiesis, and communion. And you will no doubt be aware and thinking my Dharma talk has disappeared into a sea of words. It's true. <laughs> and I trust your head is above water and you're still breathing, okay, in this linguistic sea. But let me throw you a musical lifeline. Just as an alternative. Because we can imagine this canatus, this cosmogenesis, as music. For example, in our chanting this morning that we did together and do every week. Differentiation is the compression of air pressure. It strikes our eardrums like waves, producing individual sensations of sound, disparate, contrasting with the silence between the sounds. So, from the perspective of differentiation, the entire universe is waves and interference, matter and energy, emerging and fading in time, in a rhythm. Autopoiesis is how these notes that we sang were arranged into a melody, with underlying themes, musical themes, articulated by development and repetition. Right? There were parts, were repeated parts that made them patterns and parts by our repetition. Something that otherwise would be silent is sung into existence by us. Without the pitches, the themes would not move our hearts. They would not be emotional. Our feeling would not be inspired. And without the compassion and meaning, those sounds would just annoy and distract us. Right? So it's not just differentiation that works here. Autopiasis, the compassion and meaning, gives us something that's not just annoying and distracting. Something that's beautiful. And similar to the universe, without such subjectivity and intention, it would collapse into inertia and be death for sure. Communion, that's us doing it together, the Sangha, chanting. Which, like the universe, would collapse into isolated singularities of being if we did not gather together and bring our mutuality, our differentiation and our autopoiesis <laughs> into harmony. There's a place for us. We're part of the universe. And what I'm using on it's like this, you know. A differentiation is another word for Buddha. Autopoiesis is another word for Dharma. And communion is another word for Sangha. Another trinity, another triune element animating the dynamic process of the universe, symptomatically life. Music or words, it's still just a story, a myth, a science myth, with a prophecy of transformation the evolution of our species, evolution, progress, from the old homo sapiens who objectified the world and extracted what we wanted from it, regardless of the harm and suffering it caused, to new human beings, beings being in communion with our sister and brother subjects, our Dharma buddies, co-evolving in this, our shared universe. And we could be delighted to be in such good company as ourselves. Now I'm back in the coffee shop with Wayne. At this point, he's checking his watch.
<laughs> or his phone, and we're both worried about spinning into another round. What happens is after two hours, if something comes up again, and oh, this could go on to the third hour. That's what happened on Friday. But we get in trouble that way, so I'm checking from my device too. The message is, yes, there are. I don't want to deal with it. Uh, but I do want to get up the calendar uh, item uh, app, and I want to uh, schedule the next meeting. I like being here this morning, and I'm again and similarly grateful, for sure. I'm grateful always for your kind and good-humored presence for our shared spiritual practice as befitting such excellent Dharma friends as we are here. Next time, uh, next season, summer, I want to talk about feelings and how we work with them.